Welcome to Being Human. This week, my guest is Joshua Karievsky. He's the CEO of Industrial Logic and the originator of Modern Agile uh, and does a huge amount of work in bringing lean and agile practices and his modern agile approach um, to both technical and non-technical contexts. Joshua, welcome to the show. Thanks, Richard. Pleasure to be here. So I, I first got familiar with you with your, your excellent YouTube videos, your sort of vlogs and your, your little two-minute bite-sized insights uh, and, and love some of your work with that. So, and then you got mentioned by some of my other guests uh, as somebody sort of leading the charge in this, this new interpretation of, of Agile and, and Modern Agile has been, been cited by a couple of guests now. So I'm, I'm very glad to, to have you here. Um, so I wonder if for people who are relatively new to the Agile con- conversation, perhaps if you could lay out a little bit of the history of, of Agile and, and why there seems to be this, this reinvention of it with modern Agile and, and, other, and others. Absolutely, yeah. Um, well, first off, the, uh, we're ultimately interested in better ways of working in order to get better outputs, better, sorry, better outcomes. Uh, you know, people, you know, do things a certain way. And that tends to become a tradition. And then they, you know, a company, they, that's how they do it. And if you start questioning that and looking for better ways and looking for, you know, just continually improving, you, you tend to find, you know, some newer techniques. And if, you, if you're a student of history, you can go back and look at, you know, really innovative companies that changed the game. They were disruptors. Um, Toyota, of course, with the lean manufacturing. And what they did there was just outstanding. I mean, it, it just changed the game for, you know, automakers. And in the 90s, a lot of people came together and said, we could do better than Waterfall. Um, it's not that Waterfall was a total failure. I mean, I, I was on Waterfall projects, and we, we, we were able to produce software. However, we said, are there better ways? And so really the Agile movement is about finding better ways to accomplish work in order to have better outcomes. So it has a long history. I mean, so I think, you know, in 1993, Scrum came along, and then in 1995, Extreme Programming came along. These are techniques that were very much about software development. And if you fast forward to the early 2000s, you start to see lean ideas entering the picture. Mary Poppendike and Tom Poppendike wrote, wrote these books about lean software development, and they brought in a lot of the lean manufacturing concepts into software development that heavily influenced the thinking. Then you started to see Kanban enter the picture mid-2000s, 2006, 2007. Um, and lean startup then came along from Eric Reese, and that, uh, again, changed the game in terms of how we you know, validate and invalidate things before we ever build them? How do we, uh, you know, look at our, our, our work and, and work in a way that's highly efficient, right, that minimizes waste? So it's a continuum of m- people and minds thinking about better ways to work. So Modern Agile recognized that a couple things. First off, a lot of people were doing what I would call, you know, 1.0 Agile, generation, first-generation Agile. Um, a lot of the early practices, not so much the principles, but the practices have become outdated. Um, we don't do it that way anymore. Even some of the people that created some of those early ideas have said, oops, sorry, um, nope, forget about that. We don't do that anymore. There's simpler ways. So 
you know, basically modern agile was born out of saying, Hey, yeah, that was first generation agile. Second generation agile looks a bit different. Um, the word modern was really meant to just be that we are uncovering better ways of doing all kinds of things. Another element of it is I wanted to appeal to not just software folks, not just the IT industry, not just people creating software products. It also applies to so many other areas. We're currently working with a very large pharmaceutical, helping them apply lean and agile thinking to the medicine development process. Nothing, there's no software involved, at least in the work that we're involved in. So there's this need for people to be able to talk about agile in a way that's decoupled from software development. Um, and that, of course, again, makes sense because a lot of this stuff comes back to like lean manufacturing. That was with automobiles. Um, the ideas are not exclusive to software development. So yeah, modern agile is looking to, it's also a principle driven approach. So it's four principles, which we can get into, but that's kind of a, maybe a non-concise answer to your question. <laughs> no, no, I get it. So what I'm saying, so, so you've, you've left some of the, the software specific practices or, or terminology behind perhaps to, to, to allow this to be applied in, in different contexts. Some of the early practices simply don't work. So, so that's a, that's a shift. And you talked about principle driven approach. So yeah, just, just uh, touch on that a little bit. What, what do you mean there? Absolutely. Um, well, so we, we believe that principles are what you ought to be scaling instead of practices. Um, smart companies scale their principles, right? Amazon. Um, now I know people have opinions about Amazon. Some like it, some don't like it. No company is perfect, right? Every company is going to have some poor stories about them. But overall, Amazon has done some pretty amazing things. And if you look at how they're run, they really have a daily focus on their principles. In other words, they are not the kind of company that plasters posters on the wall with principles and then ignores them. They actually use their principles every day. And Jeff Bezos talks about this. And I've actually, I've actually interviewed Amazon employees and they say, it's true. We use our principles. So principle driven tends to be much more generative in that people can generate their own ideas for how to implement those principles. Now it helps to be a student and study how are, what are certain practices to help me implement these principles, right? Um, but you also might generate your own. In other words, it's not a recipe. It's not, this is how you do Agile. Follow this recipe. Uh, anoint these people with these roles. Have them do these ceremonies. And thou shalt be Agile. It's the opposite of that. It's saying, first of all, it's saying it's, it's, it's harder than that. And um, the principles need to guide you. So several of us in, in the industry now have come up with some very simple set of principles. Alistair Coburn has created the heart of agile and that's also four simple words uh trying to get back to simplicity trying to get back to the the heart of what we had in mind in the in the 90s when we first started working on this um modern agile has four principles as well and so we drive our work we drive ourselves we measure ourselves in terms of are we living these principles are we practicing them and that's what principle driven is okay yeah, and I like that. It seems to me the key word there is generative. So we're not 
we're not it's not replicative if i could use that we're not we're not seeking to implement something that replicates what we read in a book it's generating that's right and that that would potentially condemn it to um a very small niche i i am serious about that um that is to say a lot of people want a recipe they think they need a recipe and um not all recipes are bad, but I, what I find is the recipe l- tends to lead to rigidity. Um, so you think that you're just, by just following the recipe, you're suddenly, um, you know, you're suddenly agile. And this just is not the case. Um, it just takes a lot more to, to it than that. The question that, that comes up is, is the recipe more dangerous than we think? In other words, is following a recipe just a road to, to problems. That is to say, because you're blindly following a recipe rather than thinking. I mean, and, and at the end of the day, a lot of people um, don't want to think. They, they really, it's a sad state, uh, it's a sad thing to say. But I, I see it again as a lot of people do not want to think. They don't want to adapt. So Scrum has this term, inspect and adapt. It's probably the most important part of Scrum. And the vast majority of teams that attempt to do Scrum don't really inspect and adapt on a regular basis um, because it requires contemplation, it requires thinking, it requires observing and, and actually being decisive about trying something new. Um, it's the hard part. Scrum will even say, Scrum is hard, you know? Um, so it's um, when I say that the principle-driven approach is a little bit... Um, niche i'd say not a lot of people really appreciate the the wisdom of it yet right and i'm guessing that's a hard sell so how do you sell that to somebody if they've got a recipe on the one hand or they're being told just work it out for yourself from these principles how how do you lead people through that this is the key the key the key is that we come in with with both a mindset and a skill set. So the mindset is about those principles. The skill set is, you know, a collection of sample skills that you could learn if you wanted to begin to practice some of those principles. That is, you know, implement the mindset. So it's not that we have zero, we don't come, come to the table with zero practices. But it's not a recipe. It's here's a set of practices that we've found to be valuable in the past. And if you want, you could try some of them in order to implement the principles. And that sells. People are happy with that. It's, um, it's something that makes sense to them. It doesn't feel like you're, you know, shoving this recipe down everyone's throats. Um, it feels to them a little more liberating in that they can get to decide how they best want to implement the principles. And, and it's a starter set of, of some practices that we've found to be useful. Right. Well, let's start with the principles then. So you mentioned four principles. Yes. The four principles. Let me see if I can remember them. No, I'm, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> the, the, the first principle, oops, my dogs are now going to start making a racket. Shh. Quiet. I'm about to talk about the principles. <laughs> Not that they care. Um, so maybe they're just, you know, they're just getting excited because I'm about to talk about the yeah, principles, know, right? Yeah, exactly. Here comes. All right, money. here we go. So the, the first principle is 
inspired by the great Kathy Sierra. And Kathy Sierra wrote, a, she's written a bunch of wonderful blogs. Um, and she has always focused on how do you make the user awesome? In other words, if you're producing a software product or if you're producing any product, how do you make the user of that product awesome? And why do companies tend to focus on making an awesome product rather than making an awesome user of the product? In other words, if you're making a camera, she says, don't focus on making the world's best camera. Focus on making the world's best photographers. It, it makes perfect sense, right? Um, any company that's customer obsessed, right? If it's Netflix, Amazon, other companies, if they're customer obsessed, they tend to be completely focused on the end user, the consumer, the, the client, the customer, whatever you want to call it. Um, they're focused on their experience. So make people awesome is the first principle of Agile. And it is paying homage to Kathy Sierra's book, Badass, Making Users Awesome. The subtitle was Making Users Awesome. We originally started calling it Making Users or Make Users Awesome and then realized, you know, there's a whole ecosystem of people that, you know, we think are, are worthy of targeting in terms of helping them, right? Whether it's through a product or a service. It's not just the end consumers of what we produce. It's also our colleagues. Are we making each other awesome? Is the environment, the work environment, a wonderful place to be? Is it psychologically safe? Um, so make people awesome leaves it up to you to decide who you're making awesome. It could be your colleagues. It could be your management. It could be your users and customers. Um, could be your shareholders. I don't know. You know, it's, it's, it's up to you where, where you want to take that principle. Make people awesome. First principle of, of modern agile. And that, that actually distinguishes it quite a bit from other approaches because we're saying, you know, you need to have a North Star. You need to be knowing where you're going. If you're not producing awesome results, or in other words, if you're not targeting exceptional results, then um, what are you doing? You know, what are you going after? So it's, it's definitely, definitely aspirational. Um, some people would argue, hey, the word awesome, especially in the, like in the UK, I know it's used sometimes with sarcasm, like, oh, awesome. Uh, and, you know, use any word you like, exceptional, fantastic, you know, brilliant, right? Make people brilliant would be the make, UK way of saying it, right? Or you know, make people rather wonderful. Yes, sure. And the word make is not coercive. This is not, you're going to be awesome. You're going to be wonderful. It's what can I do to enable this in you? In other words, what product or service can I produce that's going to lift you up, empower you, right? It's sometimes called uh, having a superpower. I have this product or service, and it gives me a superpower. That's the idea. That's first principle. Second principle um, is make safety a prerequisite. Making safety a prerequisite. This is interesting because this is not something you would typically hear about in most of the Agile uh, literature. However, safety has always been implicit in, in Agile. In other words, we don't want to waste time. Protecting time, protecting money. The concept of safety has always been there. Then we look at things like psychological safety. And 
we were talking about safety long before like the project Aristotle came out, this, this study by Google, um, which it was wonderful to confirm the fact that, so Google's project Aristotle, they spent several years studying the highest performing teams at Google. And they determined that the teams with the highest amount of psychological safety had the highest performance. At, what does that mean? It means people were um, unafraid to make mistakes. They were unafraid to try new roles out and fail and, and then succeed. They're unafraid to speak their mind in a meeting. Um, people did speak up in meetings. It wasn't like you'd have a couple people who are always the quiet ones. You know, you'd encourage everyone to speak and, and everyone contributed. People brought their full selves to the team. Um, so psychological safety, super important to high performance. But it's not the only thing. We look at product safety, right? I mean, look at the uh, Boeing 737 MAX disaster. The story there, of course, this is a huge problem with their airplanes. But if you trace it back, a lot of it comes down to schedule pressure, competition, um, a lack of psychological safety, right? People were not being treated in a way where they were in, encouraged to find faults and fix them. They were actually penalized if they found any problems. So um, I think of make safety a prerequisite as being how can we proactively create safety to enable us to be excellent, right? So it goes hand in hand with make, pe make people awesome. And this is not safety like, oh, don't take risks, right? Because if you don't take risks, that's not safe. That's fake safety, right? Live in no. a cave, you, you, you're not going to do too well over time. You have to take intelligent risks. Okay, so that leads us to the third principle. Experiment and learn rapidly. This is almost, you know, doesn't almost even need an explanation. Um, it's, it's integral to scientific method. It's integral to, to Agile itself, right? Uh, constantly be experimenting and constantly be learning, right? Organize your work in such a way that you can experiment rapidly and then you can learn rapidly. Sometimes people say the companies that learn faster succeed faster, right? Because their, their, their cycle of learning is just faster. Um, the famous team that produced the Gossamer Condor, which was the very first human-powered flight. Um, this was, uh, uh, you know, actually it was the Kremler Prize. It was a, a British uh, industrialist who had a lot of money and said, if, if someone can, you know, fly an airplane under human power, get up in the air, do a figure eight in the sky over a mile-long radius or, or course, and then land safely, I'm going to give them a lot of money. For 17 years, teams all over the world tried. One team in Southern California actually succeeded. And if you looked at what they did, that team, they engineered their work so that they could, fa they could fail safely. In other words, the airplane flew like two or three feet from the ground. It was very low level. So if, you, if, you, if it didn't fly, great, no one got hurt. The materials they used were you know, expected to break. Um, so they'd break, they'd fix it, and they'd do another test flight. They would, they would do several test flights a day versus their competitors that would go back to the design phase, then do the implementation, construction, then go out, do a test, it would fail, then go back again and start this whole waterfall process. And their, the time between their test flights was very slow, whereas the time between the test flights of the Gossamer Condor was very, very fast. 
So they learn quicker. And so experimenting and learning rapidly is core to achieving some great things. And, uh, that reminds me of, um, the, I read a study on the Danish wind farm industry and how they built their, their turbines in a highly iterative test and learn mm. approach, not just the, the, the turbines themselves, but the processes for creating them, constantly yes. iterating these designs with the regulators. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's one of the reasons that they achieved dominance in the market. And interestingly, in this case, it was the Americans who didn't do so well, uh, teams do well because they, they, their approach was much more based on, on theoretical physics and mechanical engineering and much yes. longer test cycles. Yeah. 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 I mean, you have to be willing to, to fail safely and be in that kind of rapid learning cycle. So I, I love that story. Yeah. Um, Finally, the, the last principle, the fourth principle, is deliver value continuously. Um, and so that means don't like work on something for a long period of time and then finally deliver it and hope you delivered value. It's far better to find a, a way of working where you're delivering value continuously and getting feedback, of course. So it goes hand in hand with experimenting and learning rapidly. So, you know, I might produce a small blog put it out there and get some feedback and learn from it quickly. I've delivered value. Now, if I want that to be a whole book, great. I'm not going to write the whole book in, in, a, in a cave and then suddenly, uh, you know, put it out there. I'm, I'm definitely going to learn by doing something small, getting it out there and getting feedback. So uh, these principles, these four principles I've just described, they very much are, I think of them as a Venn diagram. There's a lot of overlap between the principles. We can talk about make safety a prerequisite and experiment and learn rapidly. Well, how do you experiment safely? Right? So that's where there's a, there's a, you know, cross between those two. You can talk about experiment and learn rapidly and deliver value continuously. Those two easily overlap because, you know, you're delivering quickly in order to learn, learn faster. And similarly, all of the, so in the, if you're in the sweet spot in the middle where all four principles are overlapping, you know, that's, that's as best that you could possibly be doing. That's a, a brief explanation of modern agile. Right. And is there, I suppose, is there a, a particular set of moments along the way or where you started to, to fail with the existing uh, the existing approaches. Is there one or a few seminal moments where this starts to emerge? You said you presented it in Prague uh, a while back initially, but were there, what was the impetus for this? Yeah, um, so, you know, it started for me probably, in Prague I spoke in 2015 at an open space session and uh, had no idea I was going to even talking about modern Agile, but I was hearing so much what I would think of as legacy Agile first generation agile that I was just compelled to say, by the way, folks, there's people, a lot of people doing some really innovative, cool things that are, I think, a lot better. They're simpler, they're safer, they're more streamlined than first generation agile. And so I, I held a session there in Prague and uh, it was very, very well attended and a lot of excitement. So that's, that's where the, the, the idea was first born. But it, it started a little bit earlier, around 2012, um, I came across the work of Charles Duhigg, and he wrote a book called The Power of Habit, a best-selling book, and uh, he himself was a Pulitzer Prize-winning author, Charles Duhigg. 
And inside of that book, there's a, there's a chapter about a company called Alcoa, the aluminum company of America, although it's, it's an international company now. Um, and they, they basically were struggling badly. They were 100 years old in 1986 or 87. 100-year-old um, company at that point. And they had union problems fighting with the unions. They had quality problems with their aluminum. They had a lack of morale. They had very little innovation occurring. No one was innovating. They had very old legacy ways of doing things that had been around for decades and they weren't changing. Um, so they were really struggling. Their stock price wasn't good. They're getting beaten up by competitors. It was hard. They brought in this new CEO and he'd been on the board for about a year and his name was Paul O'Neill. And Paul O'Neill basically, you know, surveyed the environment and all the problems and I don't know how he did this, but he brilliantly came up with this idea that, you know, the one thing that everyone could agree on that would make a big difference is if we focus on worker safety. And he said, he, went, he goes to Wall Street and says, I'm going to make Alcoa the safest place to work in the world. You know, this is my goal. I'm going to focus on worker safety. And people thought he was mad. There were stock analysts that ran out of the room saying, you know, now Alcoa has really outdone themselves. They've hired a complete madman. Go sell the stock, which would have been a very bad idea. Um, in addition, people thought, well, he's a CEO. This is going to be his flavor of the month, and he'll, he'll get out of this crazy idea of worker safety. I mean, most CEOs, they talk about, you know, higher revenue, lower, um, lower fee, uh, you know, what is it? Higher revenue, lower um, costs, you know, costs and, you know, let's not pay our taxes if we can dodge those as well. Right. That's, that's the typical CEO uh, speech when they first join. And he, here he is talking about worker safety, but he was totally serious. And he was, there was not a flavor of the month. This was to be the way this was going to change the DNA of Alcoa. And he didn't say those words, but what it did was it changed the DNA of a 100-year-old company. Now, I've worked with companies that were 20 years old, and I said, wow, what an entrenched culture. And here he is coming into a company with 100 years of history where literally there were generations of Alcoans, and they were proud of their scars that they'd obtained on the job because of the dangerous work. And here you got Paul O'Neill saying, now, you know, if there's an injury – I want to know about it within 24 hours, and I want to have a plan from you that says how this is never going to happen again, not just at that plant where it occurred, but at any plant in Alcoa around the world. And he said one of their strategic advantages became that they were so serious about creating safety, the workers were empowered to create a safer environment. And so suddenly, and they meant it. I mean, Paul O'Neill would go to every single uh, plant owned by Alcoa, and give this speech to the employees. And he'd say, if your colleagues or your manager don't, do not allow you to make the environment safer for, for your work, here's my home phone number. Call me. And people did call him. Um, and when they did, he took action. And, and suddenly, you know, everyone really saw it. He means business. People started putting posters of Paul O'Neill's, you know, face in their lockers at work and things changed. Um, the company started to turn around. The workers were empowered not only to just create a safer environment, but suddenly with that new 
feeling of being empowered, they started coming up with newer ideas. In other words, innovation started to happen again. And it was like a blossoming of this, this long dead field. Um, and suddenly the stock price started climbing up and up and up. And the number of, you know, lost work days, which is what, when you can't come to work because you've been injured, those went down and down and down. And then comes 2000, the year 2000, which is when, after 13 years at the helm, Paul O'Neill leaves. Um, and that's when um, you would think, what, what would you think would happen at that point? Well, things would start to slip, you know, more sort of traditional, you might say traditional capitalist values. I'm not sure if that's the right word, actually, but prevalent values that, that put sort of shareholder value above everything else might start to creep in, right? That's right. Um, and what happened was the opposite. The trend continued. The trend of lost work, uh, you know, lost work days continued to go down. The stock price continued to climb. In other words, even after he left, the, it, it remained the same, right? That is to say, he changed the DNA of the company. So I read this story. I was so utterly intrigued because to me, this was like an incredible turnaround. And he created a joyful workplace again. Um, I started researching it. I started talking to people who worked at Alcoa. I started reading articles. And I eventually got to the point where I, I was able to interview Paul O'Neill himself. Um, I interviewed him a couple of times. And um, probably the smartest man I've ever interviewed in my life. Um, and, you know, this story stuck with me so much so that I realized that, that what Paul O'Neill was saying, um, and, and he uses a phrase about safety is not a priority. Priorities shift. If you say safety is our priority, yeah, it's your priority today, and then tomorrow you're going to have uh, revenue as your priority. So he said it cannot be a priority. It has to be a prerequisite. It has to be something that is, that is there all the time that you're focusing on. So that's the phrase in, in modern Agile, make safety a prerequisite. So in 2012, I was very focused on safety, and um, eventually that became one of the most important principles in modern Agile. Right. And you'd heard that story of, of, of Alcoa, but had you also observed a, a lack of safety in, in the teams that you're working on? Do you, do you have specific examples of that, 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 that had you pay attention to this? Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So first I would say that I looked back at like extreme programming and I said, you know, one of the things that I love, loved and love about extreme programming is that it brought safety into the process. In other words, um, I think it's fundamentally unsafe to be um, a silo on a team, right? So if you're a silo, you're the only person who knows a specific uh, thing about the product. That's unsafe because if you get hurt and you can't come to work anymore or you win the lottery and you don't come to work anymore by your own decision, suddenly the team can be paralyzed. Like I, I literally talked to a team last week that is in this situation. They lost two programmers. Those were the only two programmers that knew this one area of the system. They left, and the team's been paralyzed for a year. So that's a, a silo, right? And if you let silos happen, and you don't really regularly deal with knowledge transfer, well, then you're operating in a very risky way. So extreme programming at the time would say, well, okay, this is one of the reasons we do pair programming. There's a lot of reasons for pair programming, but one of them is 
to handle this knowledge transfer issue and not allow silos to occur. Today, we also do mob mobbing, right? So mobbing is, is more than two people. So it's more than pairing. But the point is, when I looked at extreme programming, I could see safety there. Um, we would talk about safe refactoring. Refactoring is improving the design of existing code without changing its behavior. So I would work in a way that was safe to refactor, right? I would use certain safe tools, my automated tests. So we, we work in a way where we can run a bunch of high-speed tests to make sure that changes we make are safe. And so what I'm trying to say here is that I didn't see so much see a lack of safety in what we'd been doing. I'd seen safety being implicit in the process. And I thought, we need to make it explicit because it's just too important. Um, and certainly, yes, in the, in the failures we've had, um, I think there was a lack of safety. So, yes, I mean, it's not to say that everything was safe. Uh, in all the years of implementing agile processes with large companies, you tend to find lots of areas where things are fundamentally unsafe. There's no psychological safety or you are not paying attention to, uh, to important things. So, you know, it's not safe to sell a product to a company and have them never use it, right? That's, that's fundamentally unsafe because if you're trying to have active users and you don't have any active users, you're selling shelfware. And the person that bought your shelfware is getting a black eye in the organization. So there's, there's all kinds of ways that you can look at the safety of the ecosystem. Um, we built our own e-learning software. We'd, we'd sell it to companies. And then it was a question of, are they going to use it? Are they going to roll it out effectively? Are they going to, are we going to monitor usage? Are we going to make sure that people are getting the maximum benefit from this product we've, we've put our heart and souls into? So safety um, to me is, is protecting people. And that means protecting their time, protecting their information, protecting their health, protecting their information, their, their um, integrity. I once worked at a company on Wall Street. That company was practically brought to its knees by one rogue trader. Um, and so you talk about integrity, uh, you can lose it very quickly. So safety really is one of these very critical pieces to, to being excellent. Right. And even, even as you tell the rogue trader story, I can see the parallel with the isolated coder. It's, 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 a, it's the same idea, right? Somebody working in a silo and not sharing knowledge. And, yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So these, okay. these are, yeah. No, sorry, go on. You were going to... No, so I'm I just, just trying to say that uh, it's taken years for us to sort of uh, come up with these principles as, as being like the most important things that we can focus on. So they're really not just uh, manufactured to be some new brand of Agile. Um, uh, there's no certifications in Modern Agile. There's no commercial entity behind it. It's a .org. So there's, it's, if you ever want to learn more, you go to modernagile.org. Um, this is really just sharing with the community what we've learned and consolidating a lot of what's in lean and agile thinking into four principles. And then what, what does that mean in terms of practice? You know, how do you do it? And why are you not offering certifications? Um, for the most part, the certification market is, is very much, um, to me, it's very, it's very focused on the certifiers making some good money. Um, 
it, it tends to get ossified. So you have a certification program. It's pretty hard to change it and modify what you're certifying people on. Whereas we think of agile as being very fluid. We're constantly learning new ways of doing things. Um, the concept of going to a two-day class and becoming a master of anything is, is it's a very unfortunate thing. So um, we, we look at it as a, long t- a, a lifetime of learning, right? Years and years and years of learning to get good at this. I'm still learning every day how to be more lean and agile. Um, all the time I, I ask myself, am I, am I living the modern agile principles? Am I making people awesome? Am I making safety a prerequisite? How am I delivering value continuously today? Um, what have I been experimenting on and what have I been learning rapidly? So it's, 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 a, it's a way of being. It's not something you tend to certify people on. Um, I'm all for education. We offer lots of training in our own company, Industrial Logic. People love it. We work really hard on it. However, we don't say, you're certified. Now you can go do it. Um, that to me is kind of uh, funny. So I, and I have no problem with skill-based certifications. For example, if you want to become a scuba diver, well, you've got to go in a pool and you have to demonstrate mastery of certain techniques and then eventually they, you know, test you out and, and you have to pass uh, both a, a, a skill-based test. Um, that's fine. You know, it's the same with driving. Most countries have, you know, driving tests that you have to pass that show skill. A lot of the agile classes that are certified don't really require showing any skill, but suddenly you're certified. So I have a, I have a big problem. And from my own integrity, I have a big problem with that. Right. Right. No, I, and then that's been a, a common theme, actually, uh, through these shows of the, the problem, I suppose, with, with, with certification. Um, you you mentioned earlier about you know you you asking yourself this question am I applying these principles? A recent guest uh, Michael Sahota, who's another thinker in the agile field, talked about this idea of a, a leadership edge. Um, and do you have a sense right now of where your leadership edge is, like what, what, the, the area in which you're most pe- working on in order to to be to be this? Well, I. Um... I have a problem with what we tend to call fake agile. And it's basically simply doing the rituals that are from a recipe um, and not really getting the benefits, the joy of real agility. Um, when I talk about the joy of agility, I mean, it's, it's, it is joyful when you get these incredible you know, results and you get them much faster and with higher quality. And that can sound like, you know, marketing BS, but it's not. I mean, if you really are a master and learn this, these, these principles and practices, um, you will produce better results faster. So just like the Gossamer Condor or the, uh, the Dutch turbines that you were talking about. Was it the Dutch turbines? Danish. Yeah. Danish. Sorry. Sorry. Danish. Sorry. Yeah. The Danish turbines. Um, you will get better results faster. You'll have more success in business and in, and in life. So, um, it's, um, I, I do want to protect people. I guess I'm a protector. I, I, in some ways, if I ask myself, well, who am I? I, I do like to protect people. And I do want to protect them from, you know, fake agile. Uh, just working in a sprint uh, for two weeks or a week, whatever it is, and then doing a stand-up meetings and maybe getting an agile planning tool 
it doesn't make you agile. Um, it's these principles we've been talking about that are really the heart and soul of agile. So my leadership edge in some ways is helping people to really understand what agile is and experience the joy of agility. Right. And how, I suppose, <laughs> how do you have people see that? Because they may feel like, because for a lot of people, a lot of these practices are completely new, right? You know, standing up once a day in a, in a huddle, you know, having a, a retrospective. And, and, and so it, for, I think for a lot of people, they can feel like, well, well, if I'm not doing Agile, what the hell am I doing? I'm, do, I'm definitely doing something different. And so how do you then say, well, you're not really doing it? Like that, how's, how do you have that? For me, it's so little to do with the recipes. I mean, I, 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 there are so many stories of agility in, in companies. Um, you know, I, I, I worked, um, I wrote a blog about Virgin Trains. And, you know, they had a derailment some time back. Um, and because they had focused so much on safety of those trains, they had done incredible things to the trains that no one had ever done before to make those trains safe. Even the way that they were, each train car was coupled together and how in, a, in the event of a derailing, what would happen um, and, and the, what they coated the windows with and, and the lights and it's everything. Um, you know, I, I look at that and, and how they, they handled it, and I say that's, um, that's a perfect example of making safety a prerequisite. Um, but when you talk about how do you get people to appreciate the joy of agility and all that, um, for me, it's, it's, first of all, I come back to the definition of agile. I think you need to go back to the dictionary. You need to go back to the definition of agility itself. Now, in the Oxford English Dictionary, um, it's basically, you know, the uh, able to move quickly and easily. That's the definition. Able to move quickly and easily. At least that's a definition. Um, in the Merriam-Webster American Dictionary, it's, uh, um, you know, able to move with quick, easy grace. Uh, and also having a, a quick, resourceful, and adaptable character is, a, is an alternate uh, definition. So I think if you look at the definition and ask yourself, am I moving with quick, easy grace? Or am I moving quickly and easily? Am I um, resourceful and adaptable and quick? This definition, these definitions help us determine, are we being agile? Not so much are we following a recipe, but are we being agile? I am sure, Richard, that you've um, experienced some, someone who was agile before right? Mm. And they probably, you, you know, whether it's someone like just cutting sushi, you know, or making, making a sushi roll, like really quickly, easily with grace, you'd say, well, did this person, uh, is this person a scrum master or something? Did they, did, they go to, did they go to agile training? Well, no, but they're incredibly agile, right? Yeah. So I see agility everywhere. It's all over the place. If you can see it and spot it and say, that's agile, then you start to see, okay, maybe now I understand more about how to become agile. Does that make sense? Yeah. And it, it's a, that's, a, that's a wonderful metaphor, actually, because when I, when I visualize somebody, let's say, cutting sushi, this is somebody who stayed in the inquiry, right, of, of how do I get better and better and better and better at this, right? Yes. Uh, 
you know, so so it's a, it's a sort of lifelong dedication to manifesting some set of principles. I mean, they might not necessarily see it in those terms, but that's what I see that when I observe it. And that, yeah, that makes a lot more sense, actually. Yeah, it's like me cutting up an onion. I mean, I am not very uh, agile about that, but um, I, I've seen people that uh, are much better with a knife. I've also seen people that bought a wonderful little device where you put a little piece of onion in there and you just push down and it chops up the onion for you. You know, and it's like, wow, look how quickly they did that, you know, and they're not, they're not crying because of the onion, onions in their eyes or whatever. Um, it's agility is, uh, something that you can observe about. It's a, it's a, it's an adjective, right? An agile dancer, an agile team. Um, so it's something that you can observe directly and, and say, yeah, that, that truly was agile. Um, the right. other thing too, though, is that I think the, the outcome is important, right? It's not like there's always tends to be a great outcome when someone's truly agile. It's not look how agile they were and then they fell off the cliff. Uh, you wouldn't really think of them as agile if like, ultimately they fell off a cliff uh, or slammed into a wall or ended up giving you a piece of sushi, the sushi roll that just fell apart. You know, right. like, well, look how, look how agile the guy was, but we got it and it just fell apart. You know, that's, the outcome's important too. So to me, real agility also goes hand in hand with an, a, a wonderful outcome. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I can, I can, I can completely, I can see that. The other thing that's coming to me as I, as I hear you describe that is that the individual is going to have a different style, but there's, yes. there's going to be for every sushi master, there's, there's, there's a different sushi style. So the context of that individual, and this was another thing I got from Michael Sahota, actually, actually human beings themselves are, are complex systems. So, so, so their context is going to be each is completely different. So for, for, for the, for the one arm sushi cutter, they're going to have a different set of practices to the guy with, I don't know, fantastic motor skills with, with all 10 fingers, right? So, so that's something I'm getting as you describe that message. Yeah, yeah. Human diversity is a wonderful thing, and um, there's no one way to be agile. Um, but being agile, and, and it applies to so many human activities, um, is is a marvelous thing. And, and we have to get better at, at spotting it, understanding it, and then trying to live, you know, aspire to it. I, I think agility is difficult. It's something we aspire to. Maybe at moments you can catch yourself in the day being agile. You know, if I'm uh, late to reply to a customer after, the, you know, several days, I'm like, wow, that wasn't too agile of me at all, you know. Um, so it's something that we aspire to. Yeah. At, at individual level and then at a team level, of course, because when you take that completely, if you say each individual is complex, then you put them in a team, of course, then you're really dealing with another sort of order of complexity. And so the yes. – the potential number of ways this team could be agile, and then of course multiple. And that brings into uh, you know, us into right into the different preferences people have and the clash of preferences, right? Because you could say, I could say, hey, I didn't reply to that customer because I want to write the perfect response. And in my desire to be perfect, I'm actually not being very agile. That is to say, I could have potentially just given a quick answer that would have been good enough. They would have been happy with it rather than waiting several days for me to answer with a more perfect, polished answer. So 
that becomes difficult because individuals have different um, comfort levels with what good enough is. You know, sometimes good enough is just perfect and other times it's not. So in Agile, you know, whether it's wind turbines or, or you know, a human-powered flight or writing a book or a blog, what level of roughness can you put in front of someone to get feedback early? How comfortable are you with that? Some people are not comfortable with it at all. They're scared of it. They thought, in fact, they might think, I'm going to be looked at like an idiot if I put something that's half-baked in front of somebody. Whereas other people would say, no, this is wisdom. This is, it's wise to put the half-baked thing in front of them because I'm going to learn quicker and I'm going to adapt faster and I'm going to have a better ultimate outcome. So when it comes to people, teams, organizations, there's a lot to understand about, you know, our comfort level with roughness, with primitive stuff that we grow into being refined. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and my experience in working with teams, that's possibly the hardest, hardest aspect of this initially is this idea of sharing the work in progress. Even, even, even if it's not publicly to cons- customers, sometimes teams can find it difficult just to have internal you know, shout yes. and tells or, or, or however they, they uh, create it. Yeah, because your ego's on the line there. I mean, I, I've written articles shown to people. I'm like, hey, by, by the way, this is just a rough draft. I mean, I just put this out. And I, I know I could do better, but I want to, you know, get it out there. Your ego has to be willing to let that happen. And uh, it's, uh, I, I view evolutionary design. I call that evolutionary design, right? You're evolving something from a very primitive thing to a more refined and beautiful thing, ultimately. Evolutionary design to me is the most important practice in Agile. It's the thing that I start beginners on. Rather than teaching them sprints, rather than teaching them stand-up meetings, I focus on teaching them evolutionary design. I want them to learn what it's like to create a primitive thing that is whole. I talk about a two-string guitar. You know, you can start out making this very primitive guitar. It doesn't have... All the fancy parts of a guitar, there's no hole, there's no frets, there's no set of perfect set of strings. You know, you just got like the body, the head, and maybe a couple of strings on there, and it's this primitive thing. Some would say, that's not a guitar. Well, it's an evolution. It's a primitive early version that's going to ultimately evolve into a very full-fledged guitar. The difference is also, it's not, a team that made the strings and a team that made the body and a team that made the head all working independently and not integrating. It's an integrated primitive whole and it's something from which you will evolve. That's evolutionary design. And to me, it's a key to agility in any field, whether it's making an airplane or, you know, or writing a book or producing a piece of software. Right. And it, uh, yeah, and it takes work on the ego. That's um, right. And I, I think Lisa Atkins talks about, well, you, you kind of need enough ego to get out there and do something and contribute, but you, right. do, you want to distinguish that from vanity. So you want you, your ego, your healthy ego should have you in action, um, but you, you want to check your vanity, which is worried about what people might criticize you for. Yes. Worrying about looking Absolutely. good. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think too, if if you um, if you look at some of the you know most uh, distinguished agilists around, um, for example, I I think of Ward Cunningham, 
Um, Ward Cunningham is one of the uh, great founders of the Agile movement and a uh, deeply Agile person, right? Um, even in the wiki, the wiki web that he invented, you know, he would sometimes write the beginnings of a sentence, not finish it. Talk about exposing yourself, right? Uh, write, write a sentence, not finish it, and wait for someone to come along and finish it. It was almost an invitation to someone to finish the sentence. Um, and, you know, Ward is the kind of person that um, is also a minimalist. I think if you really look at some of the best agilists, you'll see that they love minimalism. In other words, anything complex, anything that's not simple, ultimately needs to go. Um, the Agile Manifesto has a principle in the principle section. A lot of people miss that. They only look at the, the four, you know, um, we call them the leftovers. It's the, we value the, le- the left stuff over the right stuff. Um, good stuff there, right? But there's these 12 principles. One of them is, is the definition of simplicity, which is the art of maximizing the amount of work not done. Simplicity, the art of maximizing the amount of work not done. Um, can you somehow find a simpler way of doing something? Can you get rid of all the stuff that's, that's clogging you up? Um, minimalism, to me, applies to process as well. Can we simplify the process? Can we streamline it? Can we make it safer? How can we get rid of stuff that we once thought was vital and now we realize, nah, we don't need it? Um, that kind of thinking, I think, ultimately leads to, to great results as well. It's just being focused on removing stuff that's no longer valuable. Right. And uh, how many software programs do you own where you wish that had been the ethos of the designers? Oh, yeah. There's so many features that we barely ever use. I mean, there's so many examples of, of just uh, over-designed things and, and, you know, products that are not simple to use and stuff like that. So. I'm a huge fan of um, industrial designers, for example, who are constantly simplifying things. Sometimes they go too far, too. You know, um, there's a lot of blowback on Apple for, you know, making it hard for us to connect various peripherals to a, a laptop, a modern Apple laptop, because, hey, there's no slot for it. Um, so it, it's, it's a tricky game. But um, to me, it ultimately serves you well to look for what to remove and what to keep and how to keep things simple yeah i'm thinking of my my yoga praxis and how much uh, similarity there is right i mean the, the the people who've thought about how do we make the the human body agile have come to very similar conclusions to how do we make our work efforts agile right yes 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 uh, i um my girlfriend is a personal trainer and she she works out six days a week um, she is resilient because she's, she, you know, she just doesn't have aches and pains. Um, she's, it's a daily practice. And um, the resiliency is a big deal, too. I love this, that word, you know, how can you produce things that are resilient? How can you produce a system that's resilient versus one that just breaks down, whether it's your human body or it's the product you put out there? How does it become resilient? Um, I think there's a lot of um, knowledge to mine out of um, the movement around resiliency. Yeah, yeah, and I and I think having there's there has to be something in there about simplicity and removing extraneous um, matter, I suppose. Right? Absolutely, those go hand in hand. Anything that has a lot of moving parts is eventually going to break down. 
right? right. I mean, you yeah. know, these, uh, these new, you know, mice, for example, like this one right here, you know, it's just the battery's gone, right? I actually have the old one right here, right? The old one had the battery inside of it. It's, it's simple, but there's a battery. No, guess what? Now the battery's gone too. It's even simpler. It's this constant focus on simplicity that, um, that I, I, I think is fantastic and moves us forward, right? Makes a, makes it a, a better place. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Okay, I'm aware that we're coming up towards the the the, the end of our of our slot here. Um, mm-hmm. so a, a question: the title of this podcast is "Being Human." Um, I, I question a question I love to ask uh, my guests. For you, Joshua, you know, right right now where you're at uh, in your life, what, what does it what does it mean to be human? Um, okay, so to be human, I think it means to recognize uh, that we're not perfect. And maybe even appreciate our uh, idiosyncrasies. Um, there was a wonderful tweet going around this morning about some waiter who accidentally um, gave uh, some diners the wrong bottle of wine. It turned out it was a very, very, very expensive bottle of wine. And the owners of the restaurant basically told this waiter, you know, hey, we, we still love you. You know, we all make mistakes. So um, being human to me is, is recognizing that we're fallible. Um, and I think it means being comfortable, um, being vulnerable, you know, so we can, we can actually improve. Um, and I think, uh, ultimately we're lucky to be here. We're lucky to be alive at this time, um, and try to make a big difference in the world. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a challenging time in some regards, and it's also a wonderful time to be alive and to, to be to be human is is to you know ultimately find our purpose in life and put that value out there so that's that's very exciting you know gets me up in the morning well that's a, what a what a great message message to end on okay so for people who want to to learn more about your approach so that the modern modern agile modern agile.org Yes, modernagile.org is a wonderful place to go. I'm uh, my company is called Industrial Logic, and uh, that's industriallogic.com. Um, they're happy to. I'm on Twitter as at sign and Joshua Karievsky. I'm on LinkedIn quite a bit as well, so you'll find me there. And uh, happy to answer questions when people reach out. Um, I have a YouTube uh, channel. It's called uh, hashtag Modern Agile Show. A lot of videos there and um yeah fantastic okay well we'll put all of those links in the in the description to the show and it just remains for me to to thank you for a wonderful conversation this morning for you today uh and uh yeah until next time thank you been real pleasure being on the show thanks for having me thank you thank you okay bye bye the being human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.